Hey there, folks. Thank you once again for tuning into an episode of Real Underdogs. I am so excited for this upcoming episode. We actually recorded this a little over a month ago, right before Thanksgiving. We had an idea brought to us by my friend Lauren Skinker uh, to just talk about what makes a great movie moment and run through some of our favorites. We brought him onto the pod. We also brought Josh Gann of the Gann the Fan podcast, a recurring guest, and we had a great conversation about some of our movie moments and and gave you a little list of uh, movies to check out if you haven't seen them already. Unfortunately, I was hoping before Christmas to release an episode that we recorded a couple weeks ago where we drafted our teams of favorite Christmas movies, but unfortunately the recording for that went a little haywire, and that may not end up seeing the light of day. That was a little bit disappointing, but in lieu of that, we hope that you enjoy this episode about our favorite movie moments. And if you are listening to this on the day or a few days after it's released, Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy whatever you celebrate. Please know that you are loved, and please enjoy the next couple of hours with us. I'm John Battiston, and this is Real Underdogs. Welcome to Real Underdogs, your friends at the bottom of the box office. I am joined, as always, by Trent Neely. What's up, everybody? And Justin Redman. Yo, how y'all doing? And for two special guests this week, we've got a returning guest. He is the host of the Gan the Fan podcast, focusing on sports, The Mandalorian, and other stuff. Joshua Gregory Gan. Hey, we got the middle name. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) And coming on to the pod for the first time, he is the host of the Lauren Skinker online blog, and he's also a very successful photographer, writer, and some other stuff. Very multi-talented man. Mr. Lawrence Skinker, everybody. Wow, thanks, John. Thank you for that introduction. Very flattering. You are welcome. Uh, I'm very excited about this episode because, A, we haven't recorded in probably like a month and a half now. I think Maybe it's been like two and a half. I feel, like it, I feel like it's been two and a half, three, four, seven. I don't know. I it's think been a while. it's been a while for me. <laughs> yeah. No, Lauren, I, uh, I'm starting uh, to, uh, I'm not really recollecting the last time you were on here. I, I'm getting quarantined. Uh, <laughs> um, I think the last, I think we recorded like once after we finished the bracket, actually. We did the back yes. to school pod. At, like, we did the back to school pod. Early September. That's then, right. Yeah. yeah. My, my gosh, that was. Oh man, I'm just losing. I'm just losing track of literally everything. Uh, it's it's still March in reality. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this episode is going to be a lot of fun. We are kind of going off of a subject that Lauren posted about on his blog a few months back. Um, I guess I've got this pulled up right here. So on April third. Uh, on his blog, which you can visit at laurenjskinker.com, Lauren posted an article titled Top 5 Movie Moments. He gives a rundown of some of his favorite scenes and sequences in movie history. Um, And if you know Lauren even a little bit and you know about his interests, particularly combat and uh, war and stuff like that, his top choice will not surprise you in the slightest. Um, And we may get to hear about that a little bit today. But uh, Lauren... I want to start off by asking you, uh, what makes for what makes for a great movie moment in your eyes? That is a really tough question. But before I answer that question, I just want to say it's an honor and privilege to be on this show, The Real Underdogs. This is this is awesome. 
I love the podcast. Actually, uh, my fiance and I would all, would always go on walks and listen to the Bracket Challenge podcast. <laughs> we like those episodes so much, and that's a huge that's a huge compliment coming from Darby, especially because she doesn't like podcasts. Oh, so, uh, I mean, it was yeah. a really romantic series. Where, um, oh, it was <laughs> that indeed. was our intention. Yeah. Actually, if anything, I feel like it caused a lot of arguments over which movies were the best. So, <laughs> well, uh, which which one of us had the best takes? Ooh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and what what was your uh, what was the take that you disagreed with the most in the bracket? I'm Ooh, curious good, now. Good question. Wow, I mean, there were so many movies. There were probably like <laughs> I don't know, sixty some movies in total. So I don't even remember the, all of them. But I do remember the winner. You guys picked Lord of the Rings, correct? Yeah, we did. Yes, sir. Okay. I mean, I, I can't really I can't really pick someone as the who had the best takes or reviews on the movies. I mean, I think all y'all were pretty insightful. So I, I wanna I wanna put it back on the record that I was the only one that voted against friends being removed in the first round of the T V bracket, which I think proved a a, a very a, a big pot stir, uh especially right. with yeah, my that's girlfriend. A hot take. The, was it wasn't it uh, wasn't it remember the titans beat out the incredibles which <laughs> yeah oh what? yeah oh yes again yes. like the uh, only if, one that i like stood firmly by i was like what in the world this and is a true story forget, and, yeah, it's not I a true story this. though no 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 okay <laughs> that's true the oh, entire movie tracking is fake. so much i'm so but, sorry <laughs> but let's let justin finish his thought real well, quick. yeah sorry know, justin see the to the true story remember the titans is fake but the true story here is that the incredibles one is the only movie in my life i ever walked out of i was a little kid <laughs> that's right I, oh, I, I, I was a little kid and i i was not feeling it and my parents were so mad at me because i didn't want to watch the rest of the movie and i still to this day have not watched the rest of it and i haven't seen the incredibles 2 either i just i i just refuse that's shameful <laughs> well, and so, and so parent, I voted for remember the ever watch it? I I don't know, honestly. I, I you, you have to ask Skip and Ginger. <laughs> well, we are gonna we're gonna go ahead and uh, put an embargo on any other Drek opinions like that, and get back to my original question for for Lauren. What do you think makes a great movie moment, Lauren? <laughs> you have the floor yeah. once again. Yeah. Um... That's that's a really hard question because when I made when I wrote that article and made that list, I pretty much just came up with moments that were that I really liked and that were impactful for me. Um, I didn't really necessarily go down a checklist of you know technical components that make up a great movie, whether it's you know casting or acting or script or cinematography, like things like that. Um, I didn't have a rubric. It was you know I, I wasn't ranking them based off that. But um, I, guess for me, I guess for me, what makes great movies is um, whether they can stand the test of time. And I know you can't make immediate, if that's their standard, you can't make immediate judgment calls on any movie because you got to wait a while to see if they're still popular in the future. But I know that seems like a super, you know, cliche answer. But I think in, in a lot of ways it's true. But also those that have, um, those that have a lot of symbolism not just at a super high level, but also on like practical levels. And I think, and that's one reason why I love Lord of the Rings um, is that there's, there's a ton of symbolism there, but also strikes deep at the heart too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you, you really struck it. Like what I was going to say was the number one thing that makes a movie moment great for me is just like how how it sticks with you after like not just the first viewing, but like how you remember it and see it coming when you watch a movie again. Because like, I mean, it really, you, you just remember everything that the moment stands for. And like, you don't have to like, watch the movie again to be reminded like oh yeah this happens that was that was fun to watch you like walk out of the movie knowing like this was my takeaway and this is the thing i'm going to be looking forward to again when it comes up but like you said mm-hmm. i mean you know a lot of the time we can get you know a little bit analytical uh about like you know the technical aspects of movie making but like you know the short list that i've come up with and i think each of us picked three of our favorite uh movie moments it's entirely almost entirely based on emotions for me and based on like how a movie just affected me in the moment. And like, you you know, you can make a lot of arguments that the scenes that I pick or the scenes that the rest of us pick, like aren't perfectly executed. They've got like, you know, maybe some technical flaws, but really it's how they're able to kind of like make an imprint on like our hearts and our minds and Mm -hmm. continue to do so when we watch them again. And I think that's, that's pretty much the biggest crux of like, what makes a moment great to each individual person. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely, definitely agree with that. What would the, uh, the rest of you three say, what makes like a movie moment stick out to you? What makes it great to you? Uh, for me, I mean, it's the stuff that both of you said, it's the technical, but it's the emotion. And then for me, the other sort of qualifier I put on it is um, if this scene or moment wasn't in the movie, I think the movie would not be lesser, but it would it would be a totally different context, and the movie wouldn't tell its story as well if if this scene was removed. Um, and also, it's 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 the scene that like if I'm coming out of the theater, I want to look that scene up on YouTube immediately after, or it's the scene that I find myself like pulling up the clip just to rewatch that again and again and again, even if I don't rewatch that movie a ton of times. It's it's just like oh, but I have to see this scene and think about this scene some more. Um, so those two things for me, in addition to what you all said is probably what what does it for me yeah i think that like a lot of different things can make a movie moment great but i think that in a lot of great movie moments it's the build-up it's the it's the build-up of a lot of different emotions and feelings and um, threads and arcs and in some of the best movie moments all those just kind of collide together and turn into something really um, great or insightful or funny or just totally random uh, and uh, I think just that like just splatter of everything coming together is what um, makes a lot of these moments great for me um, I mean some movie moments are great just because they're like funny or random or stupid or whatever but <laughs> you know I, I think that um, the best ones uh it's all about just everything coming together for like one, you know, short, cool moment in time. Right. Yeah. I think even though we might consider it great, I don't think uh, any of us are going to list Steve Carell's character in Anchorman stabbing somebody with a trident. Like that's <laughs> like, I, I'll call that a great moment, but that's not like, you know, indelible capital C cinema. Exactly. It, it takes a little, right, I got to revise my list. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, you know, one of my picks, I wouldn't exactly call um, capital C cinema. But uh, but it's still kind of like but, one of those lightning in a bottle, like everybody's just kind of performing at their peak. Mm-hmm. And, and that can also be a big uh, kind of chem- chemical factor to a great moment, too. Yeah, yeah, John, you never once paid for drugs. <laughs> Not once. 
I there's does uh, does Zoloft count? I uh, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, Josh, go ahead and pick up that uh, that awkward slack. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I agree a lot with what Trent said. Of if I'm gonna go home and YouTube the scene after I see the movie, that's uh, I think that's definitely a good and I like that a lot, Trent. That's a good indicator of uh, you know the things that stand out. I think a big thing. I, so all the scenes that I picked, that we'll talk about. They all kind of have the same theme. Um, and it's something that I particularly appreciate in movies is when a movie, like you could call it a plot twist or, or whether, whether you call it that or not, but like the ability to completely like alter the um, audience's expectations of what you think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, for some reason, that's just like, that always sticks out to me more when I was, when, when you guys texted me about this and I was thinking about it, like, those are the majority of moments in movies and TV that could come to my mind were those kind of moments. Um, Cause they're really memorable for me. I really, I, but you know, these, those, I can't say the three I'm going to talk about are my hands down favorite all the time, but those are just really like memorable moments for me. Um, Cause I think it's still got to tug at your emotions in some way. Um, and, and the, and the technical aspect of it matters a lot too, but that that's what that's what sticks out for me for some reason yeah and uh i think it should go without saying but i'll make it known uh and add to that just in case like i mean probably none of these are truly over you know the collectively thousands of movies that we've seen between the five of us like our absolute top three picks for each individual like i don't think even in the week or two leading up to this podcast any of us had time to sift through our entire viewed filmography and be like oh yeah this is it this is it but this is like really i mean whether it's looking through you know our last 12 months of watches or blu-ray shelf or whatever like this is just kind of what we really grabbed our attention in the moment and there's obviously going to be more than this but this is kind of a i guess we could call these uh movie moment starter pack if you will and uh and we invite everybody who's listening to you know share on social share uh, on our blog or whatever like uh you know what are what are your some of your favorites but with that i think we should go ahead and get started with this thing so we've each like i said got uh three great movie moments that uh have stuck out to us over the years and over repeat viewings uh i think we should go ahead and start off with the guest of honor the first timer lauren what would you say is your number three movie moment for this podcast Uh Number three, okay, yeah, mine aren't really in any order, so go for it. I'll, I'll just go with the first one um, that's on my list here. Uh, so this movie moment is uh, Boromir's death and the first Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and that whole battle sequence is is amazing in my opinion. You know, this like you said, John, going back to emotion. I mean, this this movie moment means a lot because of some of the backstory, some of the context with my personal relationship with the movie. You know, Return of the King, not Fellowship of the Ring, but Return of the King was the first movie I saw in theaters, mm. and um, that's, I still that's rem- a chore for a young kid. <laughs> yeah, I think I was I was six. Yeah, Ooh. six, maybe turning seven. Um, and I still remember when you know the movie ended. And even at that young age, like I knew that what we just saw was amazing and just a masterpiece. And, you know, no one moved after that last scene when the, when the ship is sailing out. Everyone stayed in their seats. 
you know, people were still just hanging out just because they knew they just witnessed something that was greatness, you know, um, and that they might not see again. So Lord of the Rings, uh, from a personal standpoint, means a lot to me. And uh, I've also been to New Zealand. And so I've seen some of the, the shot locations and went to Weta Caves. So I just have uh, more, more of a relationship with it from, from that standpoint. Also, this, this scene in particular, though, was inspired through church, believe it or not. Uh, so I grew up in a, a really conservative church, and there weren't a whole lot of pop culture references from the, from the pulpit, just because it, it was a conservative church. You didn't really speak about culture in particular, or especially movies um, from the pulpit. But uh, one time, my pastor brought up this scene as a, as a sermon illustration, and, you know, as a young kid... I thought church was super boring and never really paid attention to the sermons at all. But when my pastor brought up this scene, you know, that immediately piqued my interest and grabbed my attention. Cause I'm like, Oh, movie, like this is so uncommon. No one, no one does this, especially in my church. No one talks about movies from the pulpit, but uh, you know, he, he was making the point. He was talking about, you know, man's in- inherent sinfulness and Boromir is the representation of that. Uh, he's kind of, he's the thorn in the flesh of the fellowship. Um, and Aragorn is the Christ figure. There's, there's lots of mini Christologies throughout Lord of the Rings, whether it's Frodo or, or Aragorn, but you know, Aragorn's probably the most obvious Christ figure as in he's, he's the return of the King. He's rising up to take back his kingdom. But, uh, he, he brings up that last dialogue as Boromir is dying and those repentant words of Boromir to Aragorn um, after he had kind of spurned Aragorn, refused him as his king, and he, he finally has that aha moment of a repentance where he, he sees Aragorn for who he is as not just, not just his, um, his lord, and when he, when he talks about, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king, but also his brother. I mean, the Bible describes Jesus as uh, someone who's closer than any brother, but Bible also describes Jesus as... Um, someone who's king and his lordship over us. So it's a really powerful moment. It's a really powerful scene. Um, so that's why it's one of my top, my top moments. Yeah. It's easily, I think it's easily the best part of that first movie in the series. And I mean, it really sticks with you just because I mean, Boromir really using his last energy to uh, defend the hobbits that he's been uh, given charge of is really powerful, especially when he's screwed up as badly as he has trying to take the ring for himself and succumbing to temptation in that way. But kind of like yeah, you absolutely. said, sh- showing showing how someone even who's hit the absolute just nadir of sinfulness and uh, suffering can really uh, find redemption. Um, right, even in the final moments, which is which is such a neat thing. Yeah, yeah. so I, I love that scene. It's great. No, I mean, it's cool because I remember when I was younger watching Lord of the Rings, I was like, Boromir is like the worst character in this. He doesn't have like any cool weapons or anything like, and then, but then as I rewatched it and as you get older, you realize it's so great because he, he is this character who like, he starts out sort of seemingly like cynical and off-putting and jerkish to not just Aragorn, but really to the whole fellowship. And you're like, man, yeah. this dude, like he sucks. And then, but then by that end point where he he realizes how he's messed up and i mean the first person he apologizes to is frodo and it's amazing i mean sean bean's great in that scene because the the turn on the dime of once he realizes what he almost did to frodo and he's like i'm sorry and then from then on that's what sort of inspires him i think initially to lead that charge to defend mary and pippin um 
and and no that that scene for sure is one probably from lord of the rings it's the one that i've rewatched individually the most uh for sure so now i'm i'm very glad this is getting talked about because it's it's a great moment all right mr gan take the floor okay um so my number three movie moment actually it can't i when i was thinking about you know this this task to find some of these moments um this one came to mind pretty quick so uh as i was talking about before something that sticks with me a lot is the ability to kind of you know subvert the audience expectations uh one movie that does this exceptionally well is the movie get out mm-hmm. um mm. i think we i think i watched this movie for, for the first time in our old apartment john oh um, uh, yeah i think it, it, that was with a kind of a semi-large group right yes yes it was that, back was in the time. days of having large groups but um <laughs> it was uh, rip. <laughs> uh but yeah so i remember remember watching this movie and i mean one it's a great movie but the end scene is the one i particularly want to talk about and this whole movie is kind of built around like the different characters in the in the movie the protagonists uh they're kind of they're poor assumptions um and like specifically with with chris he he thinks he's in a good relationship i mean he's a he's sure he's a little cautious but like um and and then his friend rod is um is telling him because i I just watched the scene and at the at the end he's like i told you you shouldn't gone in that house and he's he's the he's the cautious one trying to warn him like be careful about about this girl or whatever right and so and then then chris gets to the house and sees he's being auctioned off and some really dark crazy things are happening at this house and we as an audience wonder like how is anyone going to believe that these things are actually happening uh you know the science of it itself is like crazy to believe but then that there's this just crazy cult of people out here right that are doing these horrible things um yeah could you could you give a little more context i've never seen get out so <laughs> i've heard it's like yeah, yeah. Oh, racist family but they're oh. just they're participating in some sort of like backdoor slave trade yeah okay all right my, oh. i should have done this thank you Lauren. Yeah. um so well it's so bonkers unless you've seen the movie. Yeah, yeah. it's going to sound so weird, Lauren. Like, so basically, the girl's family that Chris is dating, Rose, uh, they, you find out that Rose has been dating a lot of black men, okay. bringing them home with her to the family. And one way or another, they're able to distract you know, whoever the boyfriend is at the time. And everyone in the family meets out in the yard and does a silent auction for whoever the guy is uh and you're wondering why and then you find out they have some crazy like in the basement of this house procedural table going on where they have found a way to take the mind of the family the white family member and like their whole like consciousness and implant it into the body of whoever this black boyfriend is um why do they uh, want to do that? Uh, uh, like, I, I guess you can say it. It's, no, you're good. go ahead. Go ahead. Because, no, I mean, uh, it, I, black I, is I, in fashion, yeah. as they put it. it. it yeah, it's like um, they want, um, they like see 
um, advantages to being a black person, and they want that. It's like, yeah, it's like this weird yeah. fascination with, uh, right, yeah, with like, this like race a, of people, like almost a Look, fetish. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. basically, they're they're, and to be clear, this is their racist worldview. Like, it's basically that they think that blacks have greater like physical advantages but like they don't have the intellect to see their potential through so they need like the white brain to like govern them i see so that white brain but black body yeah 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 yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and it brings okay. about uh uh amazing lakeith stanfield performance mm-hmm. yes yeah. it does yes it does Whew. That, yeah, is that's, very that true. scene that you put in the chat was terrifying, especially without any sort of context. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's extremely terrifying. Um, yeah. And if you have no context as to what happened, you're, you're probably like, "What in the world?" Yeah. Um, so when Chris realizes what's happening, he actually is able to escape. Uh, they they try to you know commit this procedure on him and and overtake his body with someone's mind, but he's able to escape. Um, I can't remember all that goes down that leads up to the scene that I'm talking about, but essentially um, he's trying to escape from the girlfriend, Rose, the girlfriend is track is chasing him down with a shotgun. As you see um, with another man who's on the property um, who has already been brainwashed and um, the man actually tackles Chris. And then, you know, Chris is able to shine the flashlight in his eyes and it wakes him up. It it takes him out of uh, at least that's my interpretation. Is that it mm-hmm. it, it, it yeah. Yeah, brings it his like w- wakes back. up like the tiny little bit of the original black man that's like left yeah. inside him, like his old yep. identity. Yeah, it comes back out from the sunken place. The sunken place. That's right. The sunken yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the sunken yeah. place. Um, and we see him take the rifle, shoots the girl Rose, then shoots himself because. I, I mean, you just imagine the disgust that then uh, the shame that that would bring on someone. But what I what what's really the the craziest part to me is um, there's these two essentially dead bodies. You see Chris eventually get on on top of Rose and start choking her, and um, then we see the flashing lights in the corner of the screen, and immediately it's like you don't even have to have like this thought process and outside of the movie context, but immediately it puts the audience in the position of Chris of what's the worst case scenario that happens here is I'm now a murderer. According to it's a stranger rolling up to the scene and there's two dead bodies on the road. And he, you know, these, he also happens to be black and there's, there's certainly stereotypes that exist there. And the flashing lights, they're going off in the background. Chris stands up and his face immediately just like, it's like this. It's the, he's disgusted, but he's also like, he knows what's happening. Like he, he's very expectant of the facial expression. That's just what I got from him. He was, he's very expectant of what's about to go down. And then. Chris. It turns out it's his buddy Rod. From TSA, because you see the door open, it says airport on the side of the car, and he hops out, and, uh, you know, because Chris had earlier in the movie contacted him about what was going on, and so Rod was able to follow the paper trail and uh, and rescue him, and I just thought it was, that's one of the coolest uh, resolutions to a movie of, 
completely uh you just you take you take the audience captive for a moment um and it still has a good ending too um and so i yeah that's uh that's one of that's one of my top movie moments for sure so that isn't the final scene it is it is it is yeah it wasn't supposed to originally end that way you know that right I heard it. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, so, I've heard about this. Well, yeah. The alternative ending is actually on YouTube. Like it was actually filmed and produced and everything. And you see it. It's it's a cop car rolling up, taking him into custody. And then like the final scene is um uh um what's the TSA guy's name again? Rod. 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 Yeah. Rod. It's it's Rod and a. Uh, Chris, right? It was Chris. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, the they're, yeah. yeah they're, they're talking to each other. Um, and Chris is an inmate and they're like talking to each other, like on the phones, like with like the glass separating them. And that's like the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I will. I- I'm glad they stuck with the ending that they did. And I mean, that's probably just mm-hmm. kind of the optimist slash, you know, uh, you know, just kind of liking a happy ending, like that kind of person inside me, but I will still, absolutely never forget being in the theater watching this movie and the audience's collective reaction of oh no when you see the police lights and when like and i think every without anything being spoken like there's no dialogue in that exchange until Mm -hmm. rod gets out of the car and you have that relief and you have that payoff but i everybody in the theater was thinking either he's going to get arrested i was thinking chris is going to get shot this is how this movie's going to end because like this was in the wake of you know, I mean, it was probably in the wake of some, you know, instance of police police brutality against a black like, person, which I mean, they're, yeah, Ferguson, I think, yeah. was the year before twenty sixteen yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and so I mean, you you just kind of everybody felt like, okay, I I'm smart enough to know that this is not ending well for Chris, and then thankfully mm-hmm. you get that huge weight off your shoulders when it turns out yeah. not to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, that was a nutso moment. That that was just mm. a great movie theater experience for that movie. And just so yeah. many turnarounds and misdirects and just like, you know, mm. you don't get an original movie that that's, that's that great that you get to see in the theater uh, very often. So, yeah. Uh, did you see the movie in the theater for the first time? I did. I did in the theater. I went uh, It was so good in the theater. It, mm-hmm. I, I was at like the, the Regal New River Valley. Great you know, like, very nice theater. And like, oh God, I remember like I was kind of forced into watching the movie because I hate horror movies with all my life. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't really a horror movie, to be honest. It was really like a thriller suspense kind of movie. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. I got peer pressured by all these people into going and I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, cause like I wasn't like, you know, ready for, you know, to be scared, but I just, it was the most fun I've had at a movie in a while mm-hmm. and honestly like in the past probably like five six years that was probably the most fun i've had in the theater experience i didn't see endgame or anything in theaters so really like, i don't know you didn't see it no in theaters? no i didn't see it in theaters because i wasn't caught up on those movies and mm-hmm. so i actually just watched it for the first time a couple months ago um but yeah anyway it's it's a running joke on this podcast that I'm the one that doesn't actually watch movies. <laughs> it's all good. We we need the uh, we need we need kind of the uh, the Greek chorus of uh, people who aren't cripplingly obsessed like we are. But yeah. uh, did, did the yeah. Greeks have choruses? Was that a thing? Uh, yeah, it's a whole thing with like Greek drama and tragedy. See, this is what I'm talking about, about like talking, talking about dramatic elements and like storytelling techniques that nobody has any business knowing about. 
that's no, not nerd. Just, we do a yeah. nerd. I'm nerd also going to unleash my full uh, theater degree, and I can <laughs> lecture about the four years of insanely detailed things I learned about theater history. I I look forward to it. Uh, speaking of which, Trent, go ahead and give us the rundown on your number three. All right, so I'm going to talk about Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. Mm. Um, now, John, I know you've seen this. Has anybody else seen um, the Before trilogy from Mr. Linklater? No, I hadn't. Okay, so basically the story is that there's this guy, Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, who's traveling back to the U.S. Um, after being in Madrid, and he's stopping in Vienna, um, and he's like on a train. And then he meets this girl, Celine, who's French. And he's like, well, hey, I'm about to be just in the airport overnight because I got a really early flight. Will you just like hang out with me in Vienna um, for like one night? And so they spent the whole movie is just them hanging out in um, the city of Vienna for like one whole like afternoon slash overnight. Um, Hmm. And then like three quarters of the way through the movie, they have this um, dinner scene conversation where like they imagine what would happen if they were each other just like best friend talking to them about the phone about um the experience of having met each other ring ring pick up <laughs> pick up the phone uh oh, hello hello mm-hmm. vanice and celine i don't think i'm gonna be able to make it for lunch today i'm sorry i i met a guy on the train and i got off with him in vienna we're still there and so basically the movie uses this as an excuse to for them to reveal to each other, like, what was your first impression of me? Um, you know, what what would people say about us meeting like this and sort of saying what they really think about each other and sort of even their own, like, insecurities of who they are in a relationship. And it's just a really charming way because they, like, use fake finger phones even. Um, it's just a really charming way to reveal that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Knowing all that information makes that scene a ton better because I was also just really lost when they were doing that. Um, If anybody uh, who hasn't seen it, if any of y'all have any access to like HBO Max or any of those related uh, streaming services, I think the first two before movies are available on it because the whole concept of the trilogy is each movie takes place nine years apart from one another. The first one I think mm. came out in 95 and then was then, you know, meeting on the train uh, going through Vienna. The second one takes place in Paris. It's them reuniting nine years later while the main character is on a book tour. And, you know, the, the uh, uh, Celine uh, lives in Paris. And so they encounter each other again and kind of re-fall in love. And then the third is nine years later, they're married and they have kids, but they're having a lot of marital issues. And so it's kind of like seeing... Mm really naturalistically watching like three three different decades of their relationship and it's a really neat concept um but i've actually only seen the first two movies i have yet to muster up the courage to watch before midnight which i've heard is borderline a horror movie just because yeah, of how, how real the conflict between the two of them is uh and oof. i'm I mean, I'm uh, someone who's in a very happy relationship right now, and I'm not sure I want to throw throw up any roadblocks or give myself any reason to get really get really <laughs> really t- terrified all of a sudden. Um, but all that to say, uh, you know, Linklater does a really good job in just this scene. Uh, well, this scene, but like the whole movie in general of having these people really naturally exposit their innermost thoughts in a way that isn't you know, isn't uh, trite and also isn't, you know, too obvious. It's not them just saying to each other, 
So uh, what's it going to be like when we say goodbye to each other? Or so what were your first impressions of me? It's a very creative way of subverting any expectation going into that. And it's just a, I mean, there's some of the most beautifully written movies maybe ever made. And, uh, and I highly recommend the before trilogy to anybody for sure. No. Yeah. It's just, it's so great. Cause there's just these like little lines where she's like, uh, you know, the woman, if she's imagining talking to her best friend, she's like, Oh, he probably thinks I'm like some crazy, like, controlling weirdo and then like when he's doing his conversation he's like oh man i'm telling you she probably thinks that i'm just like this dork who like doesn't even know and she thought i was like being way too obvious about sitting like on the train and then she says as his best friend quote like oh don't worry i'm sure she sat like next to you on purpose Mm -hmm. um and it's just like a very witty way but like it's it's great because it works on the level of it's a witty way for them to reveal their feelings for each other but also it is how your best friend would probably react to you telling you that story so the fact when writing can work on so many meta levels like that is always just super impressive to me so yeah i've watched that clip like so many times even though i only just watched that movie for the first time like a month and a half ago mm-hmm. yeah and uh not just the writing but i i, I should I, I would be remiss to leave out the fact that the acting in those at least the first two movies that i've seen is some of the best acting i've ever watched for sure. And I think they are actually, they are, they weren't credited on the first movie, but they're credited writers on the second two because right. basically it was Linklater created the structure of the conversations, but they through improv and rehearsing with each other off camera came up with most of what they said. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it's actually very much built on the backs of the two actors for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, no. It's a very impressive collaborative effort. So yeah, that's before sunrise and you can uh, check out that whole trilogy. It's, it's really neat. Um, I'm actually going to go ahead and start off with a Richard Linklater pick for, uh, for my number three. Uh, and, you know, when we're talking about like movie lists on this podcast, I try not to belabor the point on too many movies and talk about uh, any individual movie too many times. But I love this movie way too much to just like only mention it once. That's dazed and confused. Um, that's uh which I actually just rewatched two nights ago. And then I watched like the, the commentary track last night and like some make of, m- making of documentary. I I'm too obsessed with this movie, but it's basically it's Richard Linklater made this two years before, before sunrise it was 1993 and literally just follows the day, the last day of school in the life of a bunch of high schoolers in Austin, Texas, or maybe it's Houston. Um, but basically goes from them kind of, uh, whiling away the last few hours of their last day of school going into kind of the partying efforts that happen the the night to follow and the aftermath of where they've ended up character wise the next morning um and kind of like before sunrise and before sunset it's very thin on plot it's almost entirely character based but it's also a lot of fun it has a lot of really great laughs it features the um debut of two now insanely huge actors matthew mcconaughey and ben affleck i think both make their first credited appearances in dazed and confused um and my number three pick involves matthew mcconaughey's character wooderson uh who's kind of the guy who uh still hangs around his high school and the people who go there, even though he's like 21, 22 years old, he's very much kind of like trying to relive his glory days. It's a very sad character, but like he's honestly kind of revered as a God by like all of these high school kids who are like, he's just so cool. He drives all these cars. He was such a star athlete. And basically the scene involves him and three other guys. I think two of whom were football players. One of whom is a, uh, is a, 
a freshman or an incoming freshman kind of getting a lay of the social land in high school, entering the local hangout called the Emporium. It's just a pool hall, nice and simple. But they walk in through the doors and it automatically turns slow-mo and uh, the song track, Bob Dylan's Hurricane, cranks up to 11 as they walk in slow motion. And Wooderson, played by McConaughey, is just at the front of this triangle of three guys. Okay, look, if anyone starts messing with you, just play it cool. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The mighty authorities came to play. For something that he never done. Basically, it is the moment in the movie that's probably the most subjective and really portrays these kids... It really, it, it encapsulates the whole point of the movie in that it portrays these kids kind of how they see themselves as like really just the trumped up heroes that they are, you know, being the high school jocks, being like the football dudes that, you know, rule the school and, you know, everybody is looking at them as they walk in and reveres them. But really the whole point of the movie is that these are people whose lives, if they're living them kind of the right way, their lives haven't exactly started yet. And but they, you know, they spend so much energy on playing themselves up to be way bigger than they are and way bigger than they could be, um, or, 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 or like way bigger than they have yet to be, I should say. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it's really just kind of an interesting way of looking at the characters and how they think of themselves versus like, you know, the rest of the movie kind of shows how awkward everything is and how, you know, stilted of performance people can put on in, in their adolescence. But, uh, you know, I think it's just a really beautifully directed moment. It's a really nice steady cam shots, really well lit. And it also features, you know, the introduction of one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And, uh, and after I saw it for the first time, I think freshman year of college, I kept watching it over and over again, but that was the scene that I always looked forward to. It was just Bob Dylan cranking up and these guys just walking in the Kings of the pool hall. And it's just really fun. And I guess it really sticks with me only it, mostly because of just how much fun it is to watch. And it's a, it's just a great hang. It's a good time. No, I mean, this movie's still on my list of shame, but I mean, yeah, just knowing what I know about Matthew McConaughey's character from the reputation he has and the movie has, um, <clears throat> I, I can imagine that, that it, it is a great moment just from what I, the piece I saw. And also, I mean, a movie, if you can get a really organically amazing needle drop into a movie, um, everyone talks about movie scores, but if you can get a great needle drop, it, it's almost destined to become iconic. Um, Scorsese's basically made a career out of doing this. Mm-hmm. Um but um, Linklater also has, I think, a, an ear for, for when it's appropriate to use licensed music. And for sure, that scene just like was the epitome of cool when I was watching it today. So, no, I definitely dug that scene. And my, I already want to cross this movie off the list of shame. But now seeing that, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm in for. I'm like, now this, this need to see this is even more. So, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Trent, have you seen the before? If you liked the before movies, I think you'll dig this movie a ton. It's, it's, yeah. Cool. I, th- I mean, I think Linklater and I just vibe as, um, just sort of in style wise. I say that as if I know him. my good friend Richard, um, <laughs> my good friend Rick, uh, my good friend Rick, Rick yeah. Links as, as his friends know him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, on the Ringer podcast network on uh, their show, The Big Picture, I want to say, a week ago or so, they had a nice long conversation with him about the history of uh, Dazed and Confused because a, uh, a new oral history written by uh, uh, an author whose name uh, I'm blanking on uh, just dropped. And apparently it's a really good time. And he's a great interview. He's uh, very genial and, uh, you know, has a, has a lot of things to say. So very much awesome. recommend you digging into him as a filmmaker if you can. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of Matthew McConaughey, so I was really surprised when I saw him walk through those doors looking <laughs> the way he did. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that ridiculous, like, Dorothy Hamill haircut, like the tiny yeah. little mustache. mustache. And, <laughs> and, 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 and jeans, tucked in shirt. Yeah, but, yeah, believe it or not, I guess in 76, that was just, uh, that was the thing to be. That was the way to look. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's what freshman in college John was going for. But <laughs> yeah, for sure. he didn't say much in that scene, though. I don't think, did he? No, no. He uh, he he does like a decent amount of talking in the movie, and every line that he says is just like platinum. Is just delivered perfectly. Like his, uh, it, these are a bunch of high school kids in the seventies, and they're all stoners. His, literally, his first line: somebody gets into his car, and he says, "Say, man, you got a joint?" And the kid in the back says, uh, "No, I don't have one on me." He just goes. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. And the scene ends. <laughs> like that's that's his first moment on film ever. And I find that incredible. But that's, that's great. Yeah, great performance. Uh, I think he was I thought he was nominated for something in that movie, like Best Supporting Actor. I could be wrong. Not that movie. He actually his first nomination I don't think came until he uh won for Dallas Buyers Club. Um, okay. Was his very first. But uh, he, he deserved for that one. That was a great, great performance and a really good movie. Um, but gotcha. yeah, he's, he's a, he's a great talent. What more can we say? Let's go ahead and get to our number twos. So Lauren, uh, you are back. Justin didn't do his number one. Wait, I didn't get Justin. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, we're doing uh, whites in the front today. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm oh. so sorry. Oh. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh that's, I, I, that's I'm, ridiculous. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna mute myself and say some like prayer chant of abs- absolvement. Go ahead. Oh my I'm god. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, uh, I don't really have mine in any particular order, but I guess I'll start off with this one because I referenced it earlier. Um, from a little movie called Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story. Uh, mm. This is a movie that will ruin any every single um, musical biopic biopic or however you pronounce it for anybody. I don't care how much you guys liked Rocket Man. Like mm. this movie will ruin it for you if oh, you watch man. it. I've seen it. It did not. Um, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but basically, the movie it's it's basically just making fun of like the musical biopic. It's I think it's particularly satirizing movies like Walk the Line because mm-hmm. um, it came out, I think, like a couple of years after that movie came out. It stars John C. Riley, and it's about this kid named Dewey Cox who um, cuts his uh, more talented brother in half with a machete <laughs> and realizes that he also is a very talented musician and decides to go off and uh, become uh, just the biggest star in the world. And it it pokes fun at the uh, musical biopic um, genre so well, because John C. Riley at one point is playing like a 14 year old high school student, like, (laughs) you know, like, like the grown actors playing like the kids. Um, And uh, like Kristen Wiig also plays like a 12 year old (laughs) at one point in the movie. Uh, it just it makes fun of so many different things, but there's this running gag during the movie as he's getting more and more famous um, involving Tim Meadows, who is one of the greatest character actors 
mm-hmm. that's ever lived. Percent uh, true. Guy's incredible. Um, and it all starts where um, he Dewey walks into a room and uh, Tim Meadows's character and a bunch of women are all just you know smoking weed and uh, Dewey Cox is like, "What's going on?" And Tim Meadows is like, "Go away, Dewey." you don't want no part of this, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then he says like, um, well, you know, like, I don't want to get addicted to anything. Like it's not addictive. Uh, well, you know, like, uh, I don't want it to make sex worse or anything. It makes it even better. You know? So it's, it's basically saying like, you don't want any part of this, but he keeps like egging him on, you know? <laughs> and eventually he does it. And eventually it keeps happening with like, like, <laughs> um, like more and more drugs like eventually um it gets to like cocaine and pills and stuff where it's like go away dewey you don't want no part of this <laughs> and, and, and it's like um <laughs> but like every time he says like oh like i'm not sure if i want it and then he's like it, it's gonna make you completely happy and he's like i think i do want it no you don't want no part of this and it's just this like long running gag. And eventually um, after like a bunch of, a bunch of things that happen in the movie, Dewey kind of starts going crazy, you know, cause like every musical biopic has that like 10 year stretch. Where they kind of go crazy. They, you know, like go to some foreign country and like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, going through that part of their lives. And mm-hmm. he's kind of going through that. And the band starts to get really mad at him and, they all basically say that they're going to quit and they're all just kind of going around and like yelling their different grievances at Dewey. You know, there was this one line where the guy was like, you've never once sent a woman my way. You don't think we like to cheat on our wives too. (laughs) And then like, and then the next guy is like, well, you slept with me too, Dewey. And I've been confused about that for 10 years now. And like, but when it gets to Tim Meadows' character, every single time they go around, what he says is, And you never once paid for drugs. <laughs> Not once. And he says it like, they go around like three times, and then like at the very end, it's still like, and you never once paid for drugs. <laughs> Not once. And that line like apparently has become what Tim Meadows is most famous for saying in all movies. Like apparently people will like see him on the street and say like, you never once paid for drugs. And, <laughs> and I think that that's part of what can make a great movie moment too. Like obviously it was a running gag, but I think just um, the catchiness of that one line and the fact that it became such a, thing in society at least among like the weird people that actually saw this movie um just a very 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 funny scene mm-hmm. no have you guys seen this movie so i so i watched it on netflix like two months ago and i was yeah. dying laughing the entire time um and you're right except for rocket man it has ruined every other music <laughs> biopic for me um um because yeah it makes fun of it so well um and it's just because um, and I think people misunderstand like this movie because I think some people who didn't like it back in the day are probably like, oh man, like this makes fun of the tribulations and success of like these musicians in real life. And like what the answer is, it's like, no, this movie is making fun of Hollywood for being like, 
no, we have to emphasize the dark period of an artist and then show that the beginning and easy, the beginning and end were like super easy for them in their career. But the middle and the dark parts, the only thing interesting they did in life was, you know, be addicted <laughs> to drugs and like nearly ruin their lives. And I think that's yeah. what the movie makes fun of more than anything. Um, and no, yeah. it's great. And I actually, too, in that scene, I didn't understand the joke initially because, like, at the beginning of that scene, Dewey's like, I want a bunch of didgeridoos and, like, a million <laughs> of them. And I had just watched um, Love and Mercy, which is the uh, Brian Wilson biopic with Paul Dano. And so mm. that's a good what, Dewey's, what Dewey's spoofing there is, like, Brian Wilson um, famously had, like, mental health struggles during a period. And, like, during his uh, Smile album, he was, like, experimenting with very radical sounds. Um, again, I don't think Walk Hard is mocking um, Brian Wilson's mental illness, nor should it, but I, but it's definitely mocking sort of Hollywood's tendency to focus on those periods mm-hmm. of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, even at the very beginning of the movie, you know exactly what you're getting into because you see like just Dewey um, just leaning up against the wall, like deep in thought, and like everyone's like, wait, isn't going to go out on stage? And then Tim Meadows is like, Dewey Cox has to think about his entire life before he performs this song. <laughs> yeah. And, like, it's it's a very, very great, very underrated movie. Not no, I think I think it was before before its time. I'm pretty sure if that movie came out like now, where meta humor is a much bigger part of the, the cultural landscape, this movie would have broken box office records for a comedy. Um, yeah, there's a really good oral history. Uh, to this movie too on the ringer I, I forget who wrote it but it was very interesting to hear um apparently i, I was gonna say this um the the scene that i was talking about that you never once paid for drugs scene was actually mostly improv by tim meadows apparently he was only supposed to say that once or something but he just kept saying it and it just oh became gosh. the final cut <laughs> he's yeah. great awesome. yeah he's great uh, this is still list of shame for me but i uh it's I, on it, netflix I know, I know, and I, I got, I got to get back around to it. There's, uh, there's really very few excuses as I go into the holiday seasons and got a, got a bunch of days off. So, might as well, uh, you know, have some laughs while I can. All right. Finally, correctly, Lauren, what do you have as your uh, second pick? Yeah. So my second pick is from Interstellar, and. I'm a, like I said before, I'm a big fan of Matthew McConaughey, even though clearly I haven't seen all of his movies. Um, but the first movie I saw him in was uh, We Are Marshall, which is also on my uh, top five favorite movie moments uh, seen mm-hmm. from that movie. But I just love, I love his character in We Are Marshall. Like there's not, there's not a boring scene with him in it. Like he's just full of energy and really quirky, but still just a great character. And that movie just, there's, you know, it resonated with me because of Virginia Tech, even as a little kid, because I just have a long family history with the school. Um, anyway, that, that's just a little backstory. But um, yeah, so the scene in Interstellar, Interstellar is probably one of my favorite movies. I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan, but just the theoretical science behind it and how it is all possible. It doesn't get like too outlandish until the black hole scene where they enter the black hole. And it's like, you can do whatever you want because no one's in a black <laughs> hole. So maybe there are, maybe there is a, a library in a black hole. Who knows? But uh, yeah, the scene where, you know, so Matthew McConaughey, it's, he's joins this team to look for a new home for earth because earth is dying and destroying itself and there's, there's no food. Um, and so there's just mass famine and things like that. So he joins a space exploration team to search out a new home. And one of the prospective planets um, it, that, that 
they want to go to is close to a black hole. And so the black hole is distorting time. So they have to get in and out of this planet um, really quickly because for every, I'm not sure what the, um, what the time comparison is, but it's like every hour there is a couple years or something like that back on earth. But uh, when they get onto the planet, they get stalled due to unforeseen circumstances um, and they end up being on that planet for a couple hours. And so when they get back to the ship, uh, to the space station, uh, it's, it's, I think like 20 some years has passed by uh, on earth. And so, you know, the space station in that time has collected, you know, hundreds of messages from uh, Matthew McConaughey, who um, plays Cooper, I think is his name, uh, messages from his children. And so it's the scene where he, he sits down, like they just get back, they're exhausted, they're mentally drained. And he, he sits down uh, to look through these messages. Play from the beginning. Hey, Dad. Checking in. Saying hi. Um, finished second in school. This curl is still giving me C, so pulled me down, but you know, second's not bad. Grandpa attended ceremony. It's like it's a heart wrenching scene. Like when you watch it, especially the music, um, Hans Zimmer with the, the organ in the background. That mm-hmm. that melody is just, you know, so gut wrenching. But you know, he watches all of these precious moments from his children graduating high school, getting married, having a baby. Um, Cooper's dad dies, so the, the his son's grandfather passes away, and. Um, but it's all on the shoulders of Matthew McConaughey, that entire scene, uh, just his acting. And it's not like he, he just had to cry, but I mean, crying is probably extremely hard acting to make it look super genuine. Um, and he just did a great job with it. Uh, so no, nothing crazy, no crazy visual effects or anything like that or CGI, but just amazing acting and um, an extremely emotional and powerful moment. No, yeah, it's funny because um, Interstellar's not like I love Nolan, and it's not one of my more favorite of his movies. However, people sort of a common complaint about Nolan is like he doesn't understand like character and emotion. And whenever people tell that to me, I'm like, watch this scene and tell me this man doesn't get character yeah. and emotion. Because mm-hmm. I, th- I think what really breaks Cooper in that scene, if I remember correctly, is it's like obviously he sees his son just talk about like you know grandfather died and like him growing up, and for the most part, like. Um, Casey Affleck plays the older version of the son. He's just like tired. What breaks him is that like he sees his daughter like lose faith in him. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not like she's not even angry or sad anymore. She's just like you left and like now I've totally detached from any like bond I have from you. Right. Um, and yeah. and understandably that destroys him as a father. And that's such a like powerfully hard hitting moment. Um, it generated so many memes of like the Matthew McConaughey crying meme. And I thought that was always unfair. I'm like, this is such a great moment that you are taking way out of context. Um, But no, I, so yeah, even though I don't love everything about that movie, I really do love that scene for sure. It's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah, His daughter Murph calls him because it's her birthday. And now she's the same age as what Cooper was when he left. And so if he had returned, they would be the same age. Um, Yeah. So it's really neat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that moment is just absolutely just destructive in just how powerful it is. But it also, I mean, it plays on uh, one of the big themes of the movie, which is kind of like, uh, you know, 
the question of family over greater good of like love over greater good. And like, you know, like you said, the main reason that Coop goes on this mission is to help uh, the earth, the earth's inhabitants essentially find a new Mm -hmm. home um, because the earth isn't going to sustain itself anymore and everybody's going to die if they don't accomplish the mission. But he's so absolutely destroyed by the fact that he lost decades and decades with his children and uh you know spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen interstellar i think by the end it's implied that his son is dead when he finally gets back to earth like he's gotten so old and his Mm. and his daughter's on her deathbed and uh and he loses so much and when he gets kind of the opportunity sort of to interact with his past self later in the movie he's like banging on the wall saying don't leave you idiot don't leave because he knows the pain of having missed on missed out on his daughter's life uh, yeah. e- even if it means getting to save everybody. And it's just, oh, it, it hits me so hard every single time. It's amazing. Well, love transcends space and time, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, yep. that's the final dimension. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. Don't, don't uh, ask me to explain the movie because. Like, yeah. like, like, like length, width, height, love. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure <laughs> Stephen Hawking <laughs> would approve. Yes. It definitely has a seal of approval for sure. (laughs) Or would have. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But yeah, great movie. I think it's, I think it's underrated. It's probably a good top five Nolan for me. It's uh, not, it's not perfect, but it's got so much more great than outweighs any of its flaws. I think it's fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a, that's a great pick. Uh, Josh, what about your next one? My next one is not a movie. I uh, took the liberty of choosing a TV show for this uh, for this selection. Mm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and do some ex- explaining this time since I didn't last time. But <laughs> the good place. No, is... you did. You did a good job. <laughs> the the I good place. I even need to watch the movie now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, moment number two is another plot twist moment for me comes from the show The Good Place, one of my favorite shows. It's just one of the most creative 20-minute sitcoms uh, that I've watched. Um, And, you know, the premise of the show is that, you know, in in this show's world, the afterlife is based on how many points you earn on, on Earth. And there's a certain threshold of good points versus bad points and you have to have a certain number of points hit that threshold to get into the good place. Um, Pretty much exactly like Christianity. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly <laughs> yes. Exactly what it says there in the good word. Um, <laughs> the anyways. Book, the book of Mike Shore. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, not, uh, not what I believe, but it's, uh, <laughs> I love this show because it's, I mean, they, they know exactly what they're, they're doing is not for real. It's um, right, yeah. a really philosophical show, but um the from the beginning we are told that you know the show opens with the main character eleanor sitting in the lobby and it says welcome to the good place like you've you've arrived here so from the beginning that we are told that this is the good place and um eleanor knows for very very early in the show's running that she was not a good person that she lived a pretty uh crappy life in arizona and it, it did a lot of did a lot of things that would not be deserving of being here, um, and so from the from the from the start, 
we as the audience are trying to guess what went wrong with the system that la allowed this person to sneak into the good place. And, um, and then there's, um, then there's uh, Jason, AKA Jianyu, who um, is also one of the, uh, one of the other protagonists in the show. Uh, we learn that he's also undercover in the good place, that he's pretending to be a monk. Uh, when he is not at all, he's from good old Jacksonville, Florida, Blake Bortles <laughs> fan and all, and um, is is living it up in the good place, even though he knows he shouldn't be there either. And so we're under this whole assumption the whole time that this is the good place, that the, that the architect of the good place, Michael, who created uh, this rendition of the good place, is um, he did something wrong. He's, he's freaking out the whole time we're as an audience just trying to figure out what went wrong. Um, and I think a good ploy that they do in keeping us continuing to think about it is they give us Chidi. Chidi is the, uh, the, uh, the character who studied philosophy and, and studied, and it was a professor and this was his life's work was just debating like the ethics and morals of, of life. And so if we know that he's here, then we can we can trust that this system did do something right by allowing him to be here because you know he spent his whole life's work and in, in trying to figure this stuff out um that's until we get to the final episode of season one when essentially the the four main characters and and of eleanor chidi uh tahani and jason they've been arguing back and forth back and forth of um trying to figure out what's going wrong in the good place. And I actually, we were a little while ago, me and Haley were at uh, her parents' house and we told them they should watch this show. So we watched episode one with them. And so we went back and watched episode one and there's a line that's so cleverly put into episode one of the show that Eleanor is drunk and talking about her childhood. And the reason her parents got divorced is because, uh, they tortured each other that they were these these two people that didn't get along at all and they were just there to torture each other they got divorced and flash forward to the last episode the gears start turning in eleanor's head and she figures it out holy mother forking shirt balls they are not in the good place they are in the bad place it's just a very deceptive bad place in which these four random people were put together with completely deferring personality types to torture each other. Yep. And it's such a great plot twist that I absolutely did not see coming because I think the show does such a good job to throw everyone off the scent that, that this is truly the bad place. It's trying to get you to think of every other plausible uh, outcome for, for what is the cause behind all these issues that's happening. Um, and I just really like, especially for a 20 minute ep per episode sitcom where there's a lot of just like crude and dumb humor that, that is still fun. You were not at all ever expecting it to get that real. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's the good place. No, it's great because this show has two things that I've never associated with um, like a sitcom before, which is like plot twists and world building. Um, those things are usually reserved for your Game of Thrones and other HBO type stuff in movies. But to have that in a 20-minute sitcom 
is um it's just it's so well done and it's also it's a it's a brilliant sort of i i think um mike sure sort of being ahead of you know super annoying cinema people like me being like uh isn't it a plot hole mike that in the perfect afterlife they're having all of these like sitcom conflict and it's not working out great and there's all this bad stuff that's not the really uh good places and then he's like no it isn't <laughs> what do you say to that like and then Ted Danson also giving the best evil laugh I have yes. heard maybe ever. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe you figured it out. <laughs> oh, God. You, you ruined everything. You know that? Like, the look on his face when he's, like, reveals that, he, yes, he is, in fact, like, a bad place demon who architected this, um... Nah, it's it's one of the best episodes of television, hands down. Yeah, it's awesome. And I really wish I would have come into this show like cold, like not knowing anything. I knew this twist mm. when I watched the show for the first time. Me too. I think I had actually... So Josh was like like proselytizing about this show like and how great it was for good reason but 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 here's the thing i told you it's okay you can spoil it for me i don't care i probably am never gonna watch it and then you told me the ending of the episode and i was like that's genius i have to watch this and i was like and and it's it's a great show i still have to finish the fourth season which i think i added to netflix a few weeks ago it did it did it's all up there now yeah i i need to do that but uh yeah honestly a really genius turnaround and then from there the show just gets from season to season, just more and more bonkers, mm-hmm. but also just more and more clever and it was really fun to watch. And so, yeah, I think this is a great moment. Really good pick. Yeah, that is, that is really clever. I've heard good things, good things about the good place. No pun intended. It's in but, the name. Uh, <laughs> it's in the name. In the name. But, so the white haired guy, what's his, what's the actor's name? Ted Danson. Ted Danson. Okay. Yeah. There's someone at my work who looks just like him. It's really uncanny. It's, it's very strange. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that's an awesome, awesome pick, Josh. Thank you for that. Uh, Trent, go ahead with your next pick. All right. So for my next pick, I'm going to go with a modern classic. Um, In 2018, a little film came out called Spider-Man Into the Mm. Um, Spider-Verse. And everyone thought this movie was going to suck because Sony was just throwing every character literally at the wall, it seemed. Um, and I was watching the movie in theaters and I'm like, this is hilarious. This is funny. This is good. And I'm like, but I don't know if I think it's as great as other people do. And then the scene happens where Miles decides to finally put on the suit and leap into action. Um, literally they call it the sequence, like the leap of faith sequence. Um, and it's just, it's so well written. Um, cause at this point in the movie, like Miles has tried so many times to be, spider-man and he keeps messing up and everybody finally tells him it's like it's okay you're not ready like we got it you just hang back he's lost his uncle um his relationship with his dad is like strained um but his dad like said like i just want you to know that whatever's going on you're going to be great at whatever you do um so then the music kicks in and there's this great motif in the movie that um miles like sticks to things whenever he's nervous and he can't unstick from walls and stuff um, and he even stays stuck to the glass right before he jumps off in the sequence. Um, but he jumps off anyway. So that like ties the metaphor home completely. And it's just so good because the music like comes in. It's mixed with like the What's Up Danger song and the score. It's just, it's such a great moment. Um, and it's so earned because usually origin movies tend to like rush the, the suit up moment. But this one, it comes up really organically. And I think it's just great. 
That is yeah. great. That is a great scene. I actually just noticed how he, he his hands, because he doesn't really want to leave and jump off the yeah. skyscraper, like he shatters the glass with his hands. I just noticed that when I rewatched it. Um, yeah, no, like back. when I saw it in theaters, I was like, oh, they just wanted him to break the building because it looked cool. And then like I read the, they posted the whole script on the, like as a PDF on Facebook, like three years ago or no, like a year and a half ago. Um, and they said, nope, that was an intentional detail as yeah, was like them flipping cool. the frame so that he's like rising in the frame instead of falling downward. Right. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's for, for an animated kids movie, it's so well constructed. It's so good. Yeah, no, the, it's an interesting one because I mean, I, I was floored when I saw it in the theater. I can't remember if I saw it in 3D or not. Uh, I don't think I did, but even so the animation was just like obviously revolutionary and mm-hmm. the story was just like so complex in terms of how well and subversively it conveys its character arc. But it also, I've, I've watched it with my girlfriend's five-year-old niece who is, or, or nephew who's just enraptured the entire time. And it truly <laughs> has that universal appeal that so few movies do. It's, uh, yeah. and, and that's a really great part. It's a very, very goosebumps moment uh, if there ever it was is. one. That's an awesome pick. Uh, my number two, I'm kidding, Justin, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually going to change mine. Um, oh. I, I was originally going to do a seat from a show called Shit's Creek and Shit's Creek is an amazing show, but this show has been on my mind, um, so much lately. Cause I, I just binged the whole thing in like two days. Um, have you guys ever heard of a show called infinity train? No, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a cartoon network HBO max show. So if you have HBO Max, you can actually go through and binge it. It's, oh. it's actually it's it's very easy to get through. It's only three seasons so far, ten episodes. Each episode is like eleven minutes each. Like it's literally a cartoon. So you can you can just you can kill that show like in like a couple of days, basically, hmm. if you wanted to. And basically the concept of the show is that there's this train. It's called the Infinity Train. And there's just like pretty much infinite cars like not necessarily infinite i don't know exactly how many cars there are but there there are a lot of cars on this train and essentially the mythology of the train is that when you're at like a low point in your life and you really need to um like you know go through like a period of self-improvement self-reflection um the train will present itself to you wherever you are and you can board the train and essentially um, once you get on the train, they, the train makes a tape of all of your memories and assigns you a number based on your pre your life previously. And the higher the number, basically like the worst of a person you are or, <laughs> or like, like the worst or like, like you've done more bad things. If your number is higher, if your number is lower, then that means that you know you haven't really like done that much bad stuff but basically um the train's goal is to help you get your number down to zero by helping you to um you know through like self-reflection and um just self-improvement realizing things about yourself and um like uh like just like, like confronting your past basically in you know a lot of different ways um like each car is very different. Like the mythology of this train is actually very interesting, but basically there's this one scene 
I could talk about a number of scenes from this show, but I'm going to talk about one from season one, so I don't spoil that much. Um, basically, the main character, Tulip, who is someone who's picked up by the train, um, and needs to you know kind of go through some stuff. Uh, she actually watches her own tape that the train made about her, and that's like something that you're not supposed to do. It can be very dangerous because when you watch your own tape, you basically get immersed in like all of your own thoughts and all of your own memories so you're basically in like this static void where you look around and you see all of these things that have happened to you and um you know because you're consciously experiencing these things a lot of times your own brain can corrupt your own memories right so she was like looking back at these memories that she had but they were like you know, very exaggerated. They were, um, you know, like either so much better or so much worse than they actually were. And eventually she said, wait, like this isn't how this went. And then you actually see her real backstory pretty much like in different fragments in front of you. Like you see um, like her parents divorced and stuff like that. Um, you know, you, and you kind of are going through like all the things she has to go through to, like grow as a person with her and watch this show, by the way, it's, mm -hmm. it's very, very, very interesting. And there's all kinds of scenes I could talk about um, from the show, but that's one that really hits you because like, I mean, everyone kind of corrupts their own memories to an extent, right? Yeah. Like, like no one remembers everything exactly how it was. Um, hmm. And I think that that was a really um, uh, interesting way of showing that. Um, yeah, you guys should watch it. It's very cool. I, I'm yeah. sold. This is this, yeah, so am I. that was a brilliant. That was yeah. Of that. What is it called? Infinity Train. Yeah, okay. it sounds it sounds kind of like a. I mean, you know, talking about like the valuation aspect of it. I mean, it sounds kind of like a mix between we were just talking about the good place between like that and like inside mm -hmm. out like uh like that makes yeah it kind of kind of like the value of memory and like mm -hmm. and I'm not, I'm not trying to accuse it of like pastiching from those two at all it sounds like a really mm -hmm. really neat concept but, yeah. but i love i love any stories that like touch on on those mm -hmm. things because i mean i think yeah. memory is like a really neat a neat thing to explore with like cinema and tv yeah, and it explores all kinds of other things too. Like, it gets very dark at times too. Like, people die in this show. Like, it's not just like you know, like a kids' cartoon or anything. Like, people die like, like grisly, brutal deaths <laughs> in this show. So, so like, Inside Out meets uh, meets The Wire. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically a show about like self reflection, self growth, like by way of this train, mm. essentially. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very very interesting. And like like self belonging, and um, the third season is totally different. It's about basically like a cult, but you'll you'll get there. It's <laughs> each season focuses on different main character, actually. So um, like season one is about Tulip, but Tulip doesn't appear in like seasons two or three. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil the rest of it, but sure. uh, you guys should definitely watch it. That sounds neat. What kind of animation is it? Is it just kind of like 2D or? Yeah, just, just straight up 2D animation. Yeah. Sick. 
but yeah, thank you for that recommendation. I think that's something that was new to all of our years. I had never even yeah. uh, gotten an inkling. I never heard of that before. Yeah, I I started watching this show on like Saturday. I finished it like Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> really fresh in his mind. COVID yes. got me like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like what, like ten episodes that are like a ten, eleven minutes each. So. Mm-hmm for each season that's like you know and then you have three of those so it's basically like 300 minutes of television is like the entire series so far that's that's a that's a good saturday and sunday right there for sure yeah that's yeah awesome. but you know apparently hbo um either like let go of the staff or the staff like went to pursue other opportunities because of uncertainty around covid hmm. so they're actually not sure if there's going to be another season which hmm. really sucks because it's like the end of season three is not like a clean conclusion at all oh. like it, it's it's very much like setting up for for future stories like hmm. there's like absolutely like no resolution to anything <laughs> at the end um so like at the end of the show you're you're probably gonna like hate me for recommending it because you're just gonna be like thinking about like why when's the next episode coming out like like why'd you do this to me why why do i have to sit on this you know, for months or years until we have a vaccine and they can go into the studios again and stuff. But, you know, yeah. if, if there's any feeling of being back to normal there, the, it's, you know, being in anticipation of a show that you are like waiting to come back. Mm. And I feel like that's just kind of like, uh, I'm almost chasing that feeling right now. Cause I feel like there's nothing new to me. That's still kind of ongoing that I've not kind of, you know, the, the novelty is worn off. Like I'm kind of like, you know, season four of stranger things will come when it comes, whatever, like stuff mm. like that. But I would really like to invest in something new like that. For yeah. Sure. I've been channeling all my energy into fantasy football this year. I spend way too much time checking that <laughs> damn app. Like, oh, yeah. I, by the way, guys, I need a uh, Delvin cook to only score, you know, 40 points tonight <laughs> to, to get me to win, which with Dalvin, that, that's very possible, people. honestly. Playing the Bears, so I mean, the way we've been playing lately, you never know. Yeah, I was well, say wait. sorry, Josh, but I need your boys to be trash this evening. If it's a PPR league, that's very doable. Yeah, I don't think we're in one. Extremely at least, doable. Uh, yeah, I'm not in one at least, and uh, it, the only thing that'll get me going is for Dak Prescott to not have a right. broken angle, a broken ankle anymore. So. <laughs> Uh, oh, uh, you, you should just join a league and auto pick. They will auto pick you the best anyway. It pisses everybody <laughs> off. But like, <laughs> maybe next year we'll see. Um, uh, we'll go ahead and get to my uh, second pick. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, a lot of my picks kind of involve very little, if any, dialogue, and uh, and you know, just really big visual imprints on me. And uh, this is from the movie When Harry Met Sally, which is probably my favorite romantic comedy. Um, it's a really brilliant movie from, I think, 1989 was when it was made. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, directed by Rob Reiner, stars uh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Basically, they meet very briefly in college when he is tasked with giving her a ride to New York City after their graduation. They do not like each other at all. They get into a debate over whether men and women can ever legitimately be platonic friends without wanting anything uh, more out of the relationship. 
uh, and th- they just really don't hit it off, especially when he kind of makes a pass at her. It just ends badly. And I think it's five years after that, they meet a second time at an airport. Uh, similarly, goes kind of badly because their competing ideologies really cause them to butt heads. The third time they meet is another five years later, 10 years after their first meeting. Harry, who has been married this whole time, is getting a divorce and his worldview is kind of starting to, t- to change. He's growing more of a bit of a tenderness and a well-rounded view of the women in his life and uh, is realizing kind of the complexity of their feelings in comparison to his, or at least in comparison to what he thought women were like uh, in light of his divorce. And he and Sally by chance encounter each other for a third time in New York city. And this third time kind of hit uh, starts off a really beautiful friendship between them. But then that gets complicated when, uh, very much like they were talking about when they first met, uh, romantic feelings start to get involved. And so the movie's kind of bifurcated into these two parts of uh, Harry and Sally's really great friendship and Harry and Sally's really complicated romance. Um, And those are split into two by, uh, they're both punctuated essentially by a scene taking place at New Year's Eve. Uh, and the first New Year's Eve scene happens roughly halfway through the movie. Harry and Sally are just having a fun time dancing together. They're just chatting like old friends, you know, not a, not a care in the world. And then a slow song comes on. They start slow dancing together, cheek to cheek. And the camera stays still, just focusing them on them, just kind of slowly turning around. The first time, the first face that you see is Billy Crystal. He's just kind of got his eyes closed. He's enjoying himself. And then they turn around 180 degrees Meg, Meg Ryan's kind of smiling, but then they turn again and Billy Crystal has a face on kind of like you see just from his face, just from uh, the body language, like, oh, the, wait, what, what am I feeling right now for this person that I swore to just be platonic about my entire life? And then it turns around to Meg Ryan and the look on her face can almost be described as like terror because she has built up this guy to be just such a solid constant of friendship in her life and is starting to feel things for him too. And you are communicated entirely their feelings for each other by these looks that they aren't even exchanging with each other. They're shooting into blank distance, just kind of contemplating them feel their feelings by themselves, even while they're together. It's such a small moment. And it's so small that I think I told you guys before this, I could not find the complete scene with this moment in it with like the proper audio or anything, I couldn't find it anywhere online. I could only find it in the form of like, you know, somebody doing one of those lame YouTube compilations of putting, you know, a fictional couple against like a super romantic song, like they do with like drawings of Harry and Hermione, Hermione to, you know, chasing cars by snow patrol or something like that. There's something along those lines. And, uh, but it's really just such a beautiful moment of like the pure power of the acting and just kind of letting, letting the performers do their work and fully embody their characters and the dilemma that they're feeling. And it's a great moment. There are a bunch of other fantastic moments in the movie. It's like uh, probably one of me and Allie's favorite uh, movies that we've watched together in recent years. And uh, it was a, a really good time for us to watch. And uh it, it, it's a good it's a good date night movie, but it's also even just like just studying the power of good writing and good acting in a comedy setting. It's just it's one of the best. It's a fantastic movie. 
It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's my favorite romantic comedy as well. Um, I think it's just great too. It shows what happens when you have a great male actor like Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and then also the fact that um, Nora Ephron wrote this, who directed many other um, romantic comedies with people of like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think the fact that um, they had a male director in Rob Reiner, um, not he didn't make anything better. I'm not trying to be sexist or anything like that. But I think by having um, a male director with a female screenwriter, that sort of male-female tension that's a recurring theme in the movie was able to um, be more highlighted by having those two voices and those two perspectives come at things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the reason why that movie, as opposed to a lot of other romantic comedies, has like stood the test of time as where other people are like, this is too cliche or this is too serious. Like Everyone's like, I've not met a single human, really, who's been like, When Harry Met Sally isn't at least good. Um, right. So, so yeah, I adore that movie. Yeah, no, they, they, they balance each other out really well. You don't think about the movie and be like, oh, that's the Meg Ryan movie or that's the Billy Crystal movie. It's it, it, like neither of their character like has, uh, you know, has a, uh, a monopoly on the story. It's very balanced. For sure. For sure. It's really about the couple, which is a really hard thing to achieve in writing. Um, so. Yeah. I do feel like the the central theme of that movie is like men and women can't really just be friends, and I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. I'm thesis. not sure I do either. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but right. that is, that is kind of what the movie is saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, if like a guy and a girl are around each other for long enough, you know, <laughs> like, biology kicks in. You know, yeah, it's it's it just you know could take years <laughs> right yeah and, and 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 you know i think i just kind of watch it through the lens of like you know i don't believe that for all men and women but i mean for just in the case of this pair they just had some growing up to do and then like you know it, it maybe not all men and women like will eventually fall in love with each other but with these two it was just kind of inevitable and it was uh mm-hmm. e- even if they didn't realize it you know 10 15 years before before the fact but uh mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just even just from a self-contained story perspective, it's just it's so much fun. That sounds like a good movie. I'll have to check it out. I'm not really a huge fan of rom-coms, but it's a it it's definitely like one of the best, and it, it really just it it really subverts a lot of kind of the cliches and tropes, and uh, mm-hmm. and and it also kind of set up some as well, kind of like the whole will they won't they thing. Oh, for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a it's a classic for a reason, for sure. All right. Let's go ahead and fire this last round off. Lauren, what is your final pick for the evening? Yeah, so this is a popular movie. I feel bad because I feel like you guys are picking all these super interesting and out of left field movies, but I'm, this there is, is kind of no shows how answer. amateur I am. No, no wrong I know answer. there's not a wrong answer, but uh, it just shows how um, I haven't seen a ton of movies. I'm not a super avid movie watcher, but so this just feels super mainstream. But um, so third pick is a scene from The Dark Knight. And I was a huge Batman fan growing up. Like I would run around when I was a kid with the cape, um, had Batman belt buckles, <laughs> like the whole, the whole show. So yeah, I was a big, big Batman fan. And the movies always fell on my birthday weekend. So oh. I felt like oh, nice. no one was speaking to me. They're, they were meant for me on a deeper level. So. <laughs> um, so really enjoyed, really enjoyed uh, the Batman movies, but it definitely tells you something about how good 
a superhero movie is when one of your favorite moments doesn't even involve that much action. It's, it's, um, it's more just based on conversation and dialogue and acting. Uh, and that's just a testament to how good these movies are and the trilogy is. But the one scene in particular is the interrogation room with um, Joker and Batman. No, you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. But when they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. And it's just, it's outstanding acting. And it's a moment, it's like an epiphany for Batman where he realizes, he doesn't want to hear it, but he realizes that all the similarities between um, himself and the Joker. And it's kind of like a nightmare for Batman as all of this is um, soaking in. And the Joker is like being vulnerable with him, um, showing him the ways that uh, he's also an outcast and kind of a reject, but also just like, the Joker knows that he can, he's just toying with them too. And, and, and that kind of shows in the end where he's, uh, he has two of the hostages in separate locations and he's just loving every minute of it. So it's like the sick joke of Joker being vulnerable and, but also uh, just pulling the strings the entire time as well, like a Batman, like he's a puppet. So it's just, it's a great scene all around. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not as invested necessarily in like the Batman lore as some folks are. Cause I mean, like I've come to, you know, I loved the dark Knight movies when I was a teenager was, you know, right about when I was introduced to them. And I mean, the dark Knight was probably my most watched movie for like a good two year stretch of my life. Just how many times I revisited and was just like in awe of how it was made. Um, mm -hmm. but really digging into that character work more as I got older, it really kind of hammers into you how, you know, the, the idea of, uh, Bruce Wayne and the Joker being essentially two sides of opposite sides of the same coin. You know, they're basically yeah. came from similar origins being cast out, being, uh, you know, really kind of, uh, uh, misserved by life in a lot of ways, but because of some extenuating circumstances, you know, whether that was Bruce's wealth versus the Joker's, you know, squalor in some storylines or, uh, you know, other little uh, contributing factors, they ended up being completely different personalities uh, and, you know, on completely opposite ends of the, I guess, heroism spectrum, if you could call it. Yeah. And that's just a really interesting thing that that scene digs into, Probably anything, probably better than any other, uh, you know, story featuring Batman and the Joker and their dichotomy. I think, at least on film, like I think it's a really yeah. well, well done uh, kind of two hander. It's really good. No, I mean, yeah, it definitely, it definitely highlights how they're foils to one another for mm -hmm. sure. No, and I think uh, the Dark Knight's often held up as like the movie that made superhero movie cinema, and I think this scene is if not the whole reason people say that 90 percent um just because i think that it, it's it's such a big risk actually for nolan and for warner brothers really if you think about it to be like we're going to take a break from action from really anything that moves the plot forward until the very end and just have these two people act um and it's just so great now granted it's not the best batman movie ever made that's mask of the phantasm gotta throw that <laughs> out there while i have my platform um 
but no, it's so great. I mean, just that opening moment too of sort of dark comedy where Batman slams the Joker's head into the table and Joker's like, you never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy. He can't deal with the next and he's about to say punch and then he hits him in the hand and he's like, see? (laughs) And just everything Batman tries to throw at him, like his intimidation techniques, his strength, like the Joker just laughs at it all. And like like Heath Ledger... I mean, that whole performance is amazing, rest in peace. But the different, like, laughs that he shows, like, there's the mocking one, and then there's just, like, the cackle after he throws him into the window. Um, It's just, uh, no, the versatility of those two um, is so great. I mean, Nolan's talked about, too, how, like, that scene is, like, the favorite thing that he's filmed in his career, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, wow, I didn't know that. He's, like, just being able to be in that room with those two guys um, doing what they do. So, no, it's super impressive. Yeah, it was a toss-up. For this movie in particular, it was a toss-up between this scene and then also when Joker interrupts the party. Uh, I think yeah. that's a great sequence. Great scene. I mean, those are the two scenes I think people most talk about probably for that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just absolutely terrifying performance. Like, in, yeah, in the whole right. movie, but really, like, those two scenes, the pencil scene, like... Yeah, it's oh. it's ridiculous, like how much fear he instills into the audience when he's on screen because he's just like, just like this tiny dude, whatever. Like he's not physically, he's not that frightening, but especially the party scene where he where he interrupts it and is just taking the, the alcohol and drinking it and just pointing knives at people and walking around licking his lips, like mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. There's no there's no no special effects and. All, all that jazz, but it's still just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, for sure. And the environment isn't that scary. Like that, that environment isn't a scary scene. It's not a scary set. No, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, and, that, and that's sort of the point, though, is that it's just the simplicity of it's enclosed, and neither one of those two men can avoid each other in that space. Like that. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it's really beautiful stuff. Um, all right, Josh, what is your what is your final pick for the evening? All right, uh, we're gonna stay in the superhero genre. You guys know it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be like me to not include an MCU uh, entry into the list, and so yeah, baby, uh, the Endgame scene. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> not not quite. No, we're gonna go my favorite Marvel movie, Avengers: Infinity War, mm-hmm. and honestly, one of the. One of my, I mean, Endgame was probably, you know, is also up there as well. But Infinity War was honestly one of my favorite movie-going experiences. Uh, because this felt, this truly felt like one of the first MCU movies that had, like, legitimate stakes. Um, and yeah. so we're going to, so, like, the way, the way Infinity War kind of messes with the your expectations of the film, the, the all leading up, uh, to this movie, you know, there's there's tons of Marvel movies that are are building up to this one, right? Um, and over time, I think Marvel conditioned, you know, any any fans of the movies to believe that the heroes always win. Uh, that's just like, uh, you know, go, going into watching Infinity War in the theater, I knew what, you know, the I, I had watched YouTube videos on the comics and whatnot and what the Infinity Gauntlet does and Thanos has to get the six stones and snap and half the universe, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but I didn't, I, I wasn't completely sure if that was going to happen because again, the heroes always win in Marvel movies. The other thing is that 
the the superheroes are always the protagonists of the movie and where they really flip you know that script on its head is that that's not true for infinity war it's that thanos is the the villain and the protagonist of the movie um and you may not like it's like not really consciously there you're not thinking about it going into seeing a big blockbuster superhero movie but a couple moments that like share one moment that that like shifts that that thought for me is when they're on wakanda and uh and we're gonna just get into the to the scene now and and thanos takes the the last infinity stone and puts it in the gauntlet and he finally has all six and the music is a beat and it's like this victorious little anthem playing in the background as thanos lights up the gauntlet and then thor comes out of the out of the sky with uh stormbreaker the lightning flashing and and throws the axe into thanos and and we get a complete shift in the music in the in the score to the movie as the music immediately like starts this kind of like downward slide and like into like a minor key and um it's just it's like this really eerie feel and it's I remember in the theater thinking this, like, that doesn't seem right. Why are, why is this playing in the background as the villain has just been struck down by Thor? And it's because Thanos is the protagonist of the movie. Um, and so then, you know, we get the famous line, should have gone for the head, snaps the fingers. And that in uh, that moment, um, after, you know, Thanos is in the weird, like sees little Gamora and, you know, we get that sequence or whatever, but when it cuts back to the screen, the other thing I think I was thinking of going into the movie was if they're going to kill off anybody, it's probably going to be like Iron Man. It's going to be Captain America. It's going to, um, be these guys who've been here a long time. And then instead we see, we see Black Panther, we see T'Challa reach out for help and then you see his arm starting to fade away and the and then the camera cuts back to him and he starts fading away and we cut we get to the planet where all the heroes are at and um the guardians of the galaxy are fading away peter parker mr stark i don't feel so good Classic, oh, uh, name so of our painful. apartment's wi-fi router back in the day um, <laughs> peter parker dies and your doctor strange dies and it was a mind blowing moment for me because that's even if I thought they're going to lose in this movie, never would I have seen that it's going to be the characters that just recently got um, added into the whole lore of the, of the Marvel universe. Yeah. It's, you know, this is, it's, it's superhero cheesy, corny, big blockbuster movie, whatever. It's not that deep, but I, I will, that's still always going to be one of my, you know, one of the biggest, in theater moments for me was seeing all that go down and realizing like, Oh my gosh, like they actually, like it was one of those things. I love these movies so much. They're like, Oh, they finally like took the risk. Like they actually did this and put some actual stakes um, Mm -hmm. on this film franchise. So yeah, that that's number one for me. Yeah. I'll I'll never, the thing that made that so indelible for me was uh, it kind of, like you said, the music choices were very, uh, I think we're very purposeful. I had never kind of thought about it from the viewpoint of like Thanos as the protagonist, but you're kind of correct. Like, I mean, you know, kind of a victory 
uh, blast that he gets when he finally gets the last gauntlet. Uh, and then he gets kind of the, the heroic quip of you should have gone for the head. Like usually that would be a Tony yeah. Stark line. Um, and then, but the complete absence of music while half of humanity is disappearing is yeah. just so haunting and yeah. like really, and that's kind of the note you leave out on, but then you, you, like you say, you see Thanos kind of on his new planet where he has his garden and has kind of like this low, but really beautiful uh, major key music to kind of round out. And he's kind of smiling into the sunset and then the movie fades out and you're just like, what, what in God's name did I just watch? <laughs> like what just happened? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's really effective. And then we had to wait for a whole year. Mm-hmm. Stupid kids That's nowadays right. just got the Blu-rays right there. There were so many memes about that. Where it's like, <laughs> like my seven-year-old son, like, Oh dad, we just finished infinity war. Like let's watch Endgame, And then it's like, no, you have to wait a year. What are you talking about? It's right there. No, no, I mean, it's so great. I've, I've listened to and read the, the Rooster Brothers talking about Josh. Like, you're 100% right that they were like, we intended for Thanos to be the protagonist. And then for, like, the one hero we wanted to follow who has an arc um, in that movie, it is Thor. Because we open with him losing Loki. Um, and, you know, the only journey, really, for it, like that any character gets is him sort of forging Stormbreaker and then when he emerges in Wakanda, it's the only time in the whole movie that that OG triumphant um, Avengers score pops up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were like, we very intentionally wanted to set the audience up like, oh, this is Thor's going to tail vengeance. He's going to be the one to get Thanos. And the way they subvert that with like just mm-hmm. that last little bit, Thanos is able to get the snap and then vanish. No, it's on. Yeah. I'll never forget. People just sat in their seats in the theater for like yeah. six minutes after that. I sat there. I was dumb. I mean, <laughs> God broke my heart. Was there an end credit scene for that movie? Uh, yeah. Involving Nick Fury, uh, hailing uh, Captain right, Marvel. Yeah. 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 He was right. Dustin and then almost uttered Sam Jackson's favorite catchphrase, but was censored by his own. <laughs> Mother. F- <laughs> he goes away. That was great. Yeah, like, I found it really interesting how they did Infinity War in Endgame, because, like, I remember someone told me, like, um, like, Infinity War is, like, the brawn, and Endgame is the brain. It, it kind of feels like, in terms of, like, one being, like, a penultimate film, one being, like, a final film, they're kind of switched, you mm-hmm. know, because, like, like, Endgame is, like, very heavy with, like, you know, story, exposition, it's very heady. You know, there's like a lot of stuff going on. Whereas mm-hmm. Infinity War, it's like stones, gauntlet, <laughs> snap, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> essentially like, you know, it's it, like Infinity War felt a lot more like, um, I guess, what do you call it? Like the, um, like the coronation. I, I don't know if that's the right word. Culmination. Um, culmination. Culmination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm bad at words. Um, yeah, the, the culmination of a lot of different things. And, and Endgame was, like, almost, like, it was very different. And I thought that it was very creative how they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really awesome. And uh, I, I'd say that's, like, it, it's, it's probably a – yeah, that's a top three MCU for, for me. At first, it was, like, it, there was so much to swallow that I was, like, okay, that's a little – not quite cracking my top 10, but I've probably rewatched it like five times now. And I'm, oh, I, it, I've probably rewatched Infinity War more than Endgame, and I probably like Endgame more, but I've probably rewatched Infinity War more because I think because 
sort of what you were talking about, Justin, with its bare bones structure. It's it probably has a tighter structure than Endgame does mm-hmm. for me. Um, even though, again, I love Endgame and probably enjoy it more on the whole. But since Endgame is so much more about not only telling the story of saving that other half of humanity, but also yes. wrapping up the arcs of Tony and Cap, especially from their yeah. like ten year arc, Infinity War is much more um, just like this tight story of let's stop this from happening and the dread of when they realize they're not going to. Yeah, I feel like you could enjoy Infinity War if you haven't seen any Marvel movies. You might you might not like love it or feel a connection to it, but you can enjoy it. Like I don't I see how I you met could... a couple people who did, yeah. and they and they said it was fine. Like, I I, can't, I don't know how the hell you could enjoy Endgame. Like if you don't know like what the hell is going on <laughs> when they're like doing all this time travel and like seeing all the stuff that had happened before, like two Captain Americas, like. <laughs> oh yeah, there's yeah. no way you yeah if you get the full yeah. picture of things or be able to enjoy it as much since they go back in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a task for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, Trent, what's your final pick? So my final pick, I'm going with one of a, a movie that was not appreciated in its time, but ever since has grown on to be one of the most beloved movies of all time. I'm talking Andy Dufresne's Escape in the Shawshank Redemption. In 1966, Andy Dufresne escaped from Shawshank Prison. All they found of him was a muddy set of prison clothes, a bar of soap, and an old rock hammer, damn near worn down to the nub. Yes. Um, gosh, I mean, where to begin with this movie? It's it's great from start to finish, but... um. I, I think people sort of um, the, the end, you know, the the climax shot of Andy raising his arms in catharsis and triumph in the rain has sort of become both loved and parodied so much that I I think people forget just how earned that moment is by the rest of the movie. In that, um, you know, at the beginning of the movie, the audience isn't sure if he did it or if he didn't do it, and then um, as we go throughout, it's like, well, maybe. Um, justice will prevail and he'll get out through a legal way and there is a plot point where it's like he might there's somebody who actually did see the real killer but then that hope is taken away Um, and then through the very tragic story of fellow M.A. Brooks we learn what's going to happen to Andy if he stays in Shawshank for a full sentence and how that's going to take his hope and so that moment where we realize that that Rita Hayworth poster has a hole in it and he has dug a giant tunnel using a freaking geological tiny hammer um, and crawled through that sewage pipe. It's just, it's one of the best plot twists narrated by arguably the best voiceover use in a movie ever, Sir Morgan Freeman. Like, mm-hmm. um, th- there's just, there's nothing wrong with it. it. It's such a great moment of like triumph and yes, like, uh, it's great. Yeah, this was, I actually think I probably called this my favorite movie of all time for like a good stretch of like my teenage years. And uh, it's one of those that like, you know, like you said, it was overlooked at first, but like it's now absolutely beloved. I think it's actually listed as the number one movie of all time on the IMDb. I think it's got like a 9.3 out of 10, something ridiculous like that. Um, You know, it, it has lasting power for a reason. It's on TNT four times a day for a reason and it's like it just has such a lasting power of just like triumph and like you know just hope in in the will of the human spirit is like the big theme of that movie just making making good out of a terrible situation of you know being put in prison for something you didn't do and uh you know that culmination of him you know really mustering all of the strength that he has left to make one final bid for his you know 
long deserved freedom. It's just such a beautiful thing. And then the, the, the Thomas Newman score behind it is amazing. The, you know, Roger Deakins cinematography is just perfect. It's just, it's such a lightning in a bottle movie. It's a great, great pick. So you don't know during the movie that he's been digging the tunnel. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've watched not, it. Not until the the warden throws like the chess piece or whatever through the Rita Hayworth poster, and he realizes there's like a hole behind the poster, mm-hmm. um, and he right. like rips through the poster, and he just sees this like giant tunnel that Andy would dig piece by piece at like night, and then during the day he would like let out pieces of gravel in the prison yard from his like pockets. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah, I really wish I could have been in the theater, you know, back in 94. This is a couple of years before we were born. But like, I, it, apparently for the few people that did go to the theater to see that movie, that moment of them realizing there's a hole behind that poster was just one of the all time huge just uh, twist endings. Like, yeah, I really wish I could have could have seen that in the moment. But it's still I mean, I think it's still super impactful. Yeah, I mean, even on rewatch, it hits me almost as hard as it does the first time. Like, yeah. it's just like, ah, because they put Andy through so much beforehand. Has he been any big time movies since then? I don't even know who the actor's name is. He's he's uh, Tim Robbins. He's been in a couple. And then I believe, I don't want to say this for certain, I believe he dealt with like a big divorce and like even maybe some illness. And so um, that kept him from doing a lot of stuff. But he, he's been in stuff here and there. I didn't okay. know about that part, but I, I, I and you're probably. I right. could be like, wrong. I, I could I mean, be mis. You research this stuff very thoroughly, and so I mean, I, I trust you on that. But, um, uh, but all that to say, he he did go on to be in a few things. He actually, I think, about ten years after this movie, he won. I think it's his only Oscar. He won uh, Best Supporting Actor for Mystic River, which is a much more mm-hmm. depressing movie than Shawshank Redemption. But uh, Oh, for sure. I just watched that at the beginning of quarantine, and I was like, ooh, I'm not okay for a while. <laughs> I was like, this is not the time to watch this movie. <laughs> it yeah. was a mistake. Maybe maybe the most dour movie I think I've ever seen, if not like... It or top. Manchester by the Sea. It's close. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a bad one, too. But all that to say, I mean, yeah, he hasn't had like the gigantic, you know, uh, A-list career that I think he probably deserved, but he he's really, really great in Shawshank. Yeah. All right, let's kind of speed... I don't want to speed through yours, Justin. My, I, I think mine's a movie that probably isn't as much watch or much love, so I can speed through it, but first, let's go to your, your, uh, your final pick. Alright, so... My final scene is from uh, the second best movie of all time, Lady Bird. <laughs> um, uh, and it's the the very last scene, actually, um, where she wakes up and she's just completely drunk in the hospital. And then she just starts like walking aimlessly around the city and like her, her makeup's just like all over her face, you know, and mm-hmm. then she like, um, like the entire night before, um, I mean, wait, have you guys all seen this movie, actually? Seen it. I know that Trent and I have. Yeah. Uh, Josh and Lauren, y'all haven't? No. I have seen it. Oh, you have seen it. Okay. Just recently. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's so, like, you know, obviously at that point, like, basically she's like dealing with wanting to be like this. Um, super creative like writer in new york and instead she's from like the midwest of california which is sacramento essentially and um uh 
she's going through this whole identity crisis, but then like you see her in New York and she's very clearly like somewhat out of place in there. <laughs> like, um, like someone asks her like, um, uh, Oh, so where are you from? And she says Sacramento, but they're all drunk. And he's like, where are you from? And she's like, San Francisco. And he's like, Oh yeah, that's a great city. You know? Uh, and they get talking and then like, he makes fun of her music taste and he's like, like this guy that like is there, they're about to hook up or whatever. And he's like, like, what's wrong with your music? Like, this is just like a greatest hiss album. And she says, but they're the greatest. Like, she's, very, <laughs> she's, she's not like, you know, this like, you know, like super like indie hipster influencer, random person in the East village. Like, she's not that person, you know, I'm not that person. I live in New York. It's kind of awkward. But, <laughs> um, like, and basically she wakes up after being super drunk and she's just walking around New York and eventually she gets to a church, you know, and she walks into the church and she um, hears, she goes to like this Sunday sermon, you know, and she walks out of the church and then she um, calls her parents and leaves this voicemail where she's talking about like, um, uh, how much it meant to like finally be able to drive in her hometown and kind of like appreciate all of the things that she grew up with. Hey, mom. Did you feel emotional the first time that you drove in Sacramento? I did, and I wanted to tell you, but we weren't really talking when it happened. And you see like, there is this scene from earlier in the movie actually where um her mom was just driving around Sacramento and you just like saw you know her driving and um they actually spliced together that footage of the mom driving with um Ladybird the main character driving as well and so you see like a really cool um like parallel you know between the two of them just like driving around and like you know um uh, just experiencing the city and um, I think that that's one thing that does make that scene great because really cool like culminating scenes always have a lot of callbacks right and I thought that that was a really really cool callback to a moment that was like super inconsequential in the rest of the movie but then when it's framed in a way of you know like driving around like your home you know, and like seeing things that are completely familiar to you and, and like how cool it is that like all of these things are just super familiar. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of like the theme of the movie is like appreciating um, familiarity and like loving things that you like subconsciously pay attention to. Um, and I thought that it was really cool. I love that movie. It's no, my it's second favorite movie a, of all time. It's a great movie. And it's an amazing scene. It really is. Yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed that scene when he put it in the chat. I thought that was really creative. Yeah, I like I think, that theme of seeing familiar things in a new light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lauren, I would I would highly recommend. I think it's on Netflix still, uh, if I I'm not mistaken. So. But mm -hmm. uh, definitely check out Lady Bird. And uh, what I love about that scene and so many other scenes in the movie, it's just so unassuming. Like, I mean, it's, uh, you know, people often talk about like athletic or virtuosic filmmaking, but really, I mean, it does so... 
it does so much in just like lingering just long enough on its subjects to make them like make their impact, whether that's the characters interactions with one another or their reflection on kind of who they are and where they came from. And, you know, Saoirse Ronan's acting is also just perfect uh, mm-hmm. in that scene in the whole movie. Same with Laurie Metcalf who pay, who plays her mother, just kind of, you know, uh, learning to appreciate, uh, your roots and what's been given to you, even even though it doesn't seem like that much, um, I think it's just such an important message that isn't conveyed nearly as often as it should be, especially in like young adult or teen movies. And uh, yeah, Greta Gerwig uh, just wrote and directed the absolute crap out of that ending and and the whole movie. I think she really, I mean, I've thought about it and I was like, if I ever wanted to make a movie like somebody in the style of somebody it would it would be her like she's mm. just got such yeah. a great eye for storytelling and for uh expositing characters she's just a genius for sure yeah all right i'm gonna kind of lightning through my last pick uh so this is probably like a mount rushmore movie for me um and uh, I think with people of our generation, it's like not very often seen, but it's by one of my favorite directors, Alfonso Cuaron, who made movies like Gravity, uh, Harry Potter, and The Prisoner of Azkaban, and uh, Roma, most recently. And back in 2006, he made an incredible movie called Children of Men. Basic premise is pretty easy. Uh, in the near future, uh, basically, humanity has become unable to... Uh, reproduce uh, children stop being born and that essentially leads the world uh, to become kind of a war-torn apocalyptic wasteland um, people kind of like fighting for whatever means of survival they can when you know staring down the barrel of earth's uh, finiteness and but uh, the main character played by Clive Owen encounters a young lady by happenstance uh, who uh, beyond explanation has become pregnant uh, for the first person to be pregnant for the first time in like 30 years. And the movie basically follows his efforts to get her to safe Haven uh, medical attention so that scientists might be able to see how she became pregnant and maybe save the human race. And toward the end of the movie, she essentially gets uh, kidnapped or lost caught in a crossfire between a bunch of different military factions um, uh, after her baby has been born. But then uh after recovering her, Clive Owen is able to essentially show all of the warring people in the vicinity that they have a baby, something none of them have ever seen before. And in the middle of this completely just like bullet riddled, uh, you know, explosion uh, covered battlefield, there's a, there's a very brief ceasefire as they're allowed to leave. And they essentially walk down the the crowded halls of this uh, you know completely destroyed building and past a bunch of soldiers who are fighting for something that they probably don't even know what it is anymore. But then they all pause and just shut up for a minute and a half because they have a vision of hope right in front of them, and really just kind of like the power of uh, you know is sort of similar to the themes of Shawshank Redemption, the powers of human hope in the face of, you know, uh, absolute destruction and absolute uh, pessimism 
is a really powerful thing. And I think that this scene silently, almost silently and almost completely without dialogue portrays it better than almost any movie scene I've ever seen and is just what sticks with you when you leave the movie. Uh, It's beautifully acted. It's so just simple. The music is really soft, but touching. Um, But then right as they're out of the vicinity, the warring starts again and can also kind of touch even a little bit cynically on how, you know, we are so easy to forget the good or hopeful or joyful things in life and become enveloped in our own issues, the roots of which we don't even really remember anymore. And I think it carries so much meaning. It's, uh, there's so much great filmmaking that goes into it, shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, great, great cinematographer. And it's just one of the best movie moments in any movie I've ever seen. And I really highly recommend. If you haven't seen Children of Men, check it out. It's a great film. Yeah, I haven't watched it in... 10 years or so probably just because of how like heavy it is but mm-hmm. it's so beautifully shot and so resonant and so well acted that the the memory is like certain moments from that movie are still very fresh in my memory and i can recall them almost pristinely yeah. um and it's rare for a movie to do that to me off of one viewing and that's like one of like three probably <laughs> um so no big big recommend for children of men probably the most underrated thing quran's done which is tragic because it's arguably is like the best thing he's done yeah um yeah yeah really great movie um yeah i mean it was an incredible scene not even knowing all the backstory but then now knowing all that information the context surrounding it it makes it even more chilling of a of a sequence for sure well if you like that scene definitely recommend you check it out i'm not sure what streaming services it's available on but uh you know all of y'all live, you know, less than five hours from me. I've got it on Blu-ray. So if you want a movie night, just uh, take the hike down to or up to Nova. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always game. Um, but that is going to conclude our conversation for this evening. Uh, you know, we've unfortunately only got about three minutes allowed left on this call. So I'm going to have to wrap it up pretty quick. But uh, both Lauren and Josh, thank you all so much for guesting on this episode. This has been a really fun time. Thank you for contributing your picks and just uh, having, a, having a blast talking about movies with us. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us on. That was great. Blast. Honor is ours. We appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, Real Underdogs is produced by me, John Battiston. Our music is by Ross Walter and my co-hosts are Trent Neely and Justin Redman. Y'all take care, stay safe out there, wear a mask and just go into your next day, loving each other a little better, caring for each other a little better and uh, enjoying your movie moments. Have a good one.